came out. That's a new ministry we have here. It's called the Wake Up and Sing Ministry. So just remember that if you're out there and the drummer sees that. Good job, baby. All right. Um, uh, before I get started, I just wanted to mention to you guys, if I could, we're start, there's, a, there's a discipleship uh, class that starts May 13th. It's five weeks from 6.30 to 8 on Wednesdays in the evening. Uh, it's called the Palms Essentials. Um, just wanted to let you know, we'll talk a little bit more about it next week. But uh, basically, uh, it's going to be a five-week little course if you want to learn a little bit more about the church or about basic essentials in worship, where we're going to be talking about that. So it's only five weeks, and it starts May 13th on Wednesdays from 6.30 to 8. Uh, my name is Joe Davis. I'm the lead teaching pastor here in the Garden, and I'm excited about today's message. Uh, it's called No Changes Necessary, No Assembly required. I'm just going to get right into it and read to you the passage. I'm going to read you the first part and then the last part will be a slide. Here's what Paul says, and he's writing this in chapter one of the book of Romans. Now, the Romans, he's writing to all the Christians in Rome, and most of them were Gentile Christians, Christians who were not Jewish before they trusted Jesus as Savior and Messiah. And Rome is the center of the known world at the time. It's the political power, it's the military power, it is the philosophical power, it is the academic power, it is the scientific power, it is the entertainment power, it is the racism power of the world, it is the lack of civil rights power of the world. Everything good and everything bad is centered right in Rome at the time. And there's a church there that Paul is writing to. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but this far I have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under the obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. In other words, what Paul is saying is, I have really wanted to be there with you in Rome for quite a while so that I could preach and see more people join the kingdom of heaven. But I've been prevented. But I want you to know that my whole purpose in being is to take the gospel message to Greeks and barbarians. My goal is not to take the gospel message to Jewish people. They have other people like Peter and other guys working with them. My goal is to be with people like you. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. That's important for you to see that because Paul says, I want to take the gospel message to all different races and I want to take it to all different social economic classes. I want to take it to the poor. I want to take it to the rich. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why? Because Rome is the center of this. The center for Greeks and barbarians and wise and foolish and rich and poor. Everything there. It's the melting pot of the world at the time. And then the most famous part of probably the book of Romans, except for maybe some passages in chapter 8. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. <clears throat> now you understand, Paul realizes he's nearing the end of his ministry at this time. And his last and greatest desire near the end of his life was to be in Rome 
to proclaim the message of the gospel of Jesus. He is eager to share this message in Rome, knowing that the result of it would be that he would probably face certain death. This desire to die sharing the gospel drove him. And it's so easy for us just to read this passage, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. You know, it sounds like something great put on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker or something you would name a sermon series after. And it's so easy to read this, but you really can't appreciate how crazy this desire is and how daunting and how ridiculous it is unless you first understand, as we always do, the history of the passage. Remember, there are three ways you study every passage of Scripture, correct? Historical, what about man? Theological, what about God? And then devotional, what about me? So let's look at the historical application of this passage. I want to look at some of the problems that Paul would face with sharing the gospel in Rome. The first one is political. Rome is the center of political power, and it's brutal to outside ideas that might bring unrest to the empire. The Romans were famous for saying, look, you can have your religion as long as you want to until it causes us problems, then we're going to kill you. There's political boundaries. There are legal boundaries. Jesus was a crucified Savior. You understand that. Crucifixion was not seeker-sensitive, if you will, especially in a place like Rome. Crucifixion was the absolute worst way you could die. Crucifixion meant you were one of the worst of the worst in your crimes. Fear of crucifixion would cause most to not even want to associate with a message that had the idea of crucifixion in it for fear of their own safety. So there's some legal boundaries or barriers for Paul sharing the gospel effectively in Rome. And there's also philosophical barriers. You know, the gospel is just too simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. This is the home of the world's most renowned scholars at the time. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 1, 18-19, also written by Paul, says this. Christ, the wisdom and power of God for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are dying, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. What Paul is saying is this, all the wisdom in the world can't save you. The gospel alone can save you. And Paul recognized that there are many who are philosophical and they feel like they're brilliant and the gospel seems like foolishness to them because it's just too simple. Remember, the gospel is the only religion in world history that says you can't earn salvation. Did you hear that? It's the only religion in world history that says you can't earn it, that it has to be given to you by someone else. Then there's the spiritual boundaries. Resurrection stories were downright laughable in this sort of secular audience. 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him, foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. To believe in the resurrection would just be silly to this crowd. And then there is racism that would cause a burden or a boundary between Paul sharing the gospel in Rome. 
Think about this. Here comes a converted Jew who's already gotten into trouble in other regions with the Roman Empire, coming to Rome to preach to secularists and Gentiles and barbarians that an unknown Jewish teacher in the backwater region of Palestine is the path to eternal life. And if you Greeks, if you Romans, if you barbarians would just turn your back on everything that you know and trust this unknown Jew from Bethlehem and trust that he is the way to salvation, that's all you have to do. And these people go, what? Trust a Jew? Didn't Masada end really badly for you guys? Trust a Jew, really? Are you the ones that are in Jerusalem and causing all the problems and people keep getting killed because you were causing all this uprising? Jewish people, really? This little tribe of people near the ocean? You're the Sea of Galilee, sorry? You really want us to trust one of you guys? And it's not even like a king. It's some poor guy who said he didn't have a place to lay his head and he's the way to salvation? I'm not trusting a Jew. So there's racism there. It is interesting, by the way, that many of the same problems that Paul faced, we face today as a church. Now, humanly speaking, I think you could see that Paul probably should have been looking for ways to maybe shape the gospel message just a little bit, make it more Roman in its feel, maybe. <clears throat> I mean, can you imagine if you're the Roman church and you've worked hard, you've grown a group of believers in Rome and it's not easy to do it there, and then Paul, who you know is very outspoken, writes you a letter and Paul says, I can't wait to be there. I've been dying to be there so long because I want to preach the gospel so bad to so many different types of people because I'm not ashamed of it. It's the power and I'm not backing off. If you were like a church leader in Rome, could you probably say like, Paul, we love you, dude, but can you just back off a little bit? It's kind of like how I feel when I listen to tea party people talk. I'm just being real. It's kind of how I feel when I hear, you know, the uh, Occupy Wall Street people talk. I understand your message, but can you just kind of moderate it a little bit? Make it a little bit more palatable? Can you imagine how the Roman leaders are feeling? So why was Paul so irrational in his confidence in the gospel? First of all, his own conversion was pretty amazing. Remember, he's walking down the road. Jesus appears and says, why are you fighting me? And Paul is transformed from a murderous person who hated the church and wanted to kill the church to its greatest church planner. His own experience with the power. Remember the story we talked about last week in, in the region of Galatia? And he goes in there to these people who are worshiping Zeus and other gods, and he preaches the gospel and he sees God save people there. His own passion. Paul was a passionate man by nature. He was the most passionate Christian killer at the time. But now his passion is the kingdom of heaven. Paul was never a guy who was saying, yeah, I guess I like that okay. Paul either loved it or hated it. That's the way God made Paul. And lastly, his own confidence. His own confidence was not in himself, but in the power, the sovereign power of God to use the gospel. Matter of fact, Paul even says, for all the spiritual things I've done, and this is literally what the scripture says, so don't be offended, it's all like dung. It's just poop. That's what he says. 
He says, everything that I've done, all the work I did as a Pharisee, all of it, it's nothing but dung compared to the excellency of the work of Jesus. So Paul's confidence was not in himself, but in the work of Christ. Okay, so now you understand a little bit of the history about how Paul had this confidence. Now let's look at the theological aspect of this. Why did Paul have this confidence? Because he knew what the prophet Isaiah said. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eaters, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. For it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is the promise that God says about his word, that when it goes out, no matter who's taking it, even if it's a flawed vessel, even if it's a vessel that seems polished, even if it's a vessel that used to kill Christians and now is trying to make Christians, no matter what it is, when my word goes out, it will accomplish everything it's supposed to. It's not your job to make it palatable. It's not your job to massage it. It's not your job to make it something that's more fitting to the culture. It is the message, and what makes it work is my power and my spirit, which always wins whenever it wants to. See, Paul had absolute confidence in the message and no other message. His very nature of who God made him would not allow him to change it, even if he was facing death. Why would he change it? For fear of rejection? He didn't care about that. Would he change it for political retribution? No, he had already spent time in prison because of it. Would he fear, would he want to change it for legal trouble? Well, of course not. He wasn't afraid of dying. Would he change it for philosophical arrogance? He'd say, look, I was with the best of you when it comes to philosophy. And it was empty. Would he change it because of societal, spiritual hurdles? No, nope, he didn't care. So what does it mean for the church today? I feel like we as a church, and I'm not just talking about us in the garden or at Church of the Palms or the church in Sarasota. I'm talking about the church in general, the church in America. Sometimes we are more ashamed of the gospel than we are the radicals on either side of the spectrum of our lives. Often the church lacks confidence in the truth and the power of the gospel, and we water it down sometimes in, hope of, in hopes, that, and we feel like for some reason, some arrogant, ridiculous, silly reason that it's our God, it's our job to make God more palatable, more acceptable to those who don't know him. Or perhaps sometimes we get our passions distracted by other things around us. And I'm just going to tell you, there's no spiritual power in the tea party. There's no spiritual power in electing a Christian to the White House. There's no power of salvation in environmentalism. There's no power of salvation in green energy. There's no power of salvation in civil rights. By the way, civil rights in Rome was a lot worse than it is today. There's no power in big government socialism. There's no power in free market capitalism. There's no power of salvation in organized religion. There's no power of salvation in denominational purity. There's no power of salvation in Presbyterianism. I mean, if there was going to be one place, it would be there, but there isn't. 
You know what else? There's no power of your perception of godly living. Oh, we've got to make the gospel palatable by how we live. Guys, we're sinners. And every newsflash, everybody around you knows it. There is no power in universalism. Some sort of watered-down message that says all roads lead to God. Think Paul would have taken this message to Rome? The melting pot of philosophical thought? That Jesus was an exclusive path? See, guys, here's a couple of things I'm going to share with you. The power of the gospel is not in how it's marketed, but in how it's constructed. You understand what I'm saying? The power of the gospel is in not in how it's packaged and marketed to your community. The power of the gospel is in how it is constructed, how it is built, the work that went into it, the work of Christ on the cross. The power of the gospel is not in its presentation, but it's in its application. The power of the gospel and the power of salvation is not in you having some slick, five-point presentation with PowerPoint or maybe using, you know, macro flash media on the internet. Boy, this is really a good gospel message. It'll really save people. That's not where the power of the gospel is. The power of the gospel is when God applies it to the heart of a sinner. The power of the gospel is not in its ability to be understood. It's in God's ability to enlighten someone to understand it. And how do we always talk about this? It's through faith, which is what? It's a gift. It is that gift of faith that makes the gospel powerful. The, the power of the gospel is not in the response of men. Now, there's got a little bit of an idea. The power of the gospel is not in the response of men, but the promise God will not allow his word to return unsuccessful. So when we share the gospel... The power of the gospel is not inherent in how many people come to know Jesus. The power of the gospel is inherent in the fact that those whom God has called, he will give the gift of faith, and the word of God will not fail. The power of the gospel is not in its rhetoric, but in its ingredients. It's not the flowery words that make the gospel powerful. It's the ingredients that make up the message. And what are those ingredients? What are the key ingredients to this powerful gospel that Paul was not ashamed of, that we should not be ashamed of? Here are the ingredients that should never, ever be watered down. Number one, man is a sinner. Hey, you know one of the big lies out there? We're all God's children. Wrong. We are not born God's children. We're born children of darkness, according to the scripture. Man is a sinner. Number two, Jesus was the son of God. Number three, Jesus died on our behalf, on the cross, and was separated from God because of our sin in the grave. Number four, Jesus was resurrected by the power of God, the same power that makes sure the word of God will not return void. Same power. 
And number five, faith in the cross and his resurrection is an important ingredient. And again, faith is the gift. So instead of recognizing that the gospel is some sort of offensive message, that if it's going to be effective, it should be watered down, or maybe one of these ingredients could be, can we just remove the idea that Jesus is the only way? Can we just say that Jesus is, is a really good way? You know, there's a lot of ways that way, but, but ours is really good. No. The gospel shouldn't be watered down. It should be concentrated with emphasis on those ingredients. Don't let other things in to water it down. Take the gospel and concentrate it and say, look, this is the message that saves. Boom, these five things. Don't add other stuff. Don't subtract one you think society may not like about man as a sinner. Oh, we're all God's children. No, that's watering down the gospel. We're born sinners and we need forgiveness. And Jesus offers it through his death on the cross. And his resurrection conquers death. And when God enlightens you, he gives you faith to believe in the cross and the resurrection. I love how Martin Luther puts it. The gospel is a story about Christ, God's and David's son, who died and was raised and is established as Lord. This is the gospel in a nutshell. You know, as Reformed churches, churches of the Reformation, Protestant churches, Baptist, Presbyterian, Episcopal, we often celebrate Reformation Day, which was actually a couple weeks ago. And we talk about how thankful we are that, that the Reformation broke away from corrupt teachings and said that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And we celebrate that. And I'm thankful that guys like Martin Luther helped lead that when he nailed the 95 Thesis on the door of the church and said, these are the problems I have with what the church is teaching today. But for some reason, while we venerate Martin Luther and Augustine and other great reformers, we still look for ways as a church in America to make the gospel more palatable. I'm glad Martin Luther didn't make it palatable. Listen, Martin Luther was a crass, crude, rough guy. I'm glad God works in spite of us, aren't you? Any attempt to adjust, massage, broaden, soften, add, or subtract from the gospel is evidence that you are ashamed of Christ and his work. And the result in that message is powerless to change lives. This does not mean we as a church can't be filled with grace and love and mercy and acceptance and compassion toward those who need the gospel. The church can be all those things without compromising the crucial gospel recipe. Think about it. The gospel that had the power to transform you wasn't watered down. Why would you withhold the power of the message that transformed you from someone else? Our hope for people doesn't rest in our ability to massage the gospel message. It rests in our confidence in the Spirit of God to distribute the gift of faith to those he calls into our sphere of influence. Why? 
So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Folks, this is why Paul was not ashamed of the gospel and had confidence it was the power for salvation because he knew that it was God's work to convince people, not him. He just had a blast telling people about it. 